0: Today, we begin the fifth chapter of the letter of James. This is the last chapter of the book. We've only got a few more weeks in this letter and I know that some of us are probably glad that we're almost done with this series. (laughs) James has been a challenging read for us, myself included, because James has been hitting us over and over again as there's nearly 60 commands in just these five short chapters, 60 commands. Live like this, but don't live like that. Pursue this, but don't pursue that. Follow this way, but don't go that way. James is a challenging read. But I think it's also been a good, worthwhile study for us. Because this letter, as I've mentioned many times, has a knack for bringing home the practical aspects of living as a follower of Jesus. Of how our beliefs, our attitudes and actions cannot remain divorced from each other, but need to come together in a tangible and consistent way. Today's passage is no exception, let me explain. A person who had lost their way came across another person by the side of the road and asked for a little guidance. The person by the side of the road appeared to be mute as they made signs with their hands indicating they would direct the lost stranger if they were paid for doing so. Grasping the person by the side of the road's meaning, the lost stranger handed over some money. And when that happened, the person by the side of the road suddenly began to speak, directing the lost stranger by word of mouth. Grateful for the assistance, but still a bit confused, the stranger asked before continuing on, why did you act like you couldn't speak until I gave you some money? The person by the side of the road quickly answered, because I learned a long time ago that it's only money that talks. Money talks and, well, you probably know the rest of that expression. But if it's true that money talks, then the question is, what does the money the wealth and the resources that we possess, what does it say about us and the lives we are living? This is the question we'll be wrestling with as James returns to the gap between words and deeds, between what is and what should be, specifically related to money, to wealth, to the resources we've been given. So don't go away, don't leave, because if we think James is slowing down as his letter draws to a close, get ready, because he's about to come high and inside with some of his strongest, harshest, but most useful words yet. Here they come from James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Good morning, Grace family. The verse of the day is James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. This is the word of the Lord. Yet again, James comes out of the gate hot and on fire. Now listen, you rich people, he writes. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. This is the third time in this short letter that money is the topic, as James challenges the rich, wealthy people, including both believers and non believers. But specifically, James is speaking to rich Christians. Perhaps we're thinking, whew. Thank God for that, because James then certainly isn't talking to me. However, before we move too quickly to distance ourselves from what James has to say, let's be mindful of a few things. First, pretty much all of us listening to this message are blessed to possess a higher and wealthier standard of living than the richest of those to whom James was first writing. Second, While everybody who is receiving this message today is in a different situation, the majority of us would be in the rich category as far as James is concerned. Why, we might ask as we continue to protest, we're not among the rich. Here's a gentle reminder of why. By the standards of 80% of all the people in the world today, do we have the following in our possession? Food for more than two meals. A car. Mind you, I only asked if we had one car. A place to live with a roof, with lights, heat, clean water, indoor plumbing, more than two outfits of clothing. Well, if we answered yes to these questions, then we have way more than the majority of the world's population, and that makes all of us rich, wealthy, Understanding that we are in fact whom James is talking to, we might find ourselves much more uncomfortable as James tells us to weep and wail because of the misery that's coming upon us. What misery is coming our way and and why? James will be more specific in the verses that follow. But for now, before we press on, we need to be clear about what James is and is not saying so that we can fully understand his message to us, what it actually is. So first, James is not making an indiscriminate attack on the rich. If we review our Bibles, there are several servants of the Lord who were rich. Abraham, Job, King David, King Josiah, Joseph of Arimathea, Philemon, Lydia, to name a few. James is not condemning having money or wealth either. The Bible is often misquoted as saying, money is the root of all evil. However, the correct quote from 1 Timothy chapter 6 is the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. James, in calling the rich to mourn, is not calling us either to lament being rich or to forsake the wealth we have. No. As the following verses will reveal, the amount of money we possess is not important. It's how we gain, how we view the money we receive. Having wealth is not the issue. It's what we do with the wealth we have been given that matters. In verses two through three, James looking ahead to the end of all things, the last days, when we will each stand before Jesus, James renders a verdict in the past tense. He writes, your wealth has rotted. Moths have eaten your clothes and your gold and silver are corroded. Now there were three categorical classes of riches in the Roman world, grain, garments, and gold. So in one sense here, James is directly addressing how his original audience living in the ancient world would have evaluated their prosperity. At the same time, James is speaking beyond this time period as he makes a threefold repetition of basically the same point. The transitory nature of material goods, the perishability of riches, grain rots, clothes fall apart, gold in the yield of eternity corrodes or decreases in value. James is assessing the ultimate return the rich will receive based on their investments if they have based the success, the security, and the salvation of their lives upon their material wealth. He frames the outcome in ironic and, frankly, cautionary language at the end of verse 3. As he writes, all that is being treasured up is not lasting wealth. Our material riches in all of its forms, money, power, influence, property, will not endure the scrutiny of divine judgment of giving an account of our lives before Christ and what we have made of, and how we have exercised the grace we have been given by God. You know, there's a well-known saying, he or she who dies with the most toys wins. Well, James here begs to differ with that popular philosophy of life. Writing of how all our material wealth will eat our flesh like fire, James might have put it this way, he or she who dies with the most toys will not escape hell. James warns if we pride our lives on our material wealth, such treasure will serve to accuse and testify against us in revealing what we truly lived for, despite claiming our allegiance to Christ. Again, let me restate something. The issue is not having wealth or being rich. The issue is how we seek to acquire our riches and what we do with the wealth we are given. That's why James goes on to highlight four specific wrongs when it comes to how we pursue riches and how we handle wealth. Hoarding, fraud, personal excess, and injustice. First, James declares you have hoarded wealth in the last days. Hoarding is stockpiling beyond what is necessary. It's exercising a measure of power and control that does not trust God to provide because it doesn't trust what God has already provided. Hoarding is holding on to more than is needed for yourself. It's accumulating more for me, not to ensure the well-being of others, but for myself, for my family, for my people. And hoarding easily becomes an addiction because once I convince myself there is not enough, I will always need to acquire more, more security, more control, more material provisions. Not just James, but Jesus himself prohibited this kind of mindset and action in terms of our material wealth. Jesus did this when he told the story of the rich fool who kept building bigger barns to store rather than share his growing harvest. Jesus, you might remember, began that parable by declaring life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he ended that story by urging us not to store up things for ourselves, but instead to be rich toward God. My friends, all that glitters is not gold and true gold is not found in amassing material wealth. The folly of hoarding our material wealth is exposed in its perishable nature. It's not ultimately productive because it does not last. In the end, it is lost. The second misappropriation of material wealth James highlights involves fraud. In verse four, James writes, the rich fail to pay the workers who mowed their fields. One of the essential and repeated tenets in the law of God, the Torah, is paying those who work for you what they're worth. In books like Leviticus and Deuteronomy, the Lord explicitly calls his people not to defraud or rob those who work for them. God specifically calls us not to take advantage of hired workers, especially those who are disadvantaged or foreigners. We are both to pay fair and living wages to those who work for us and to pay them in a timely manner, meaning not to withhold them if the work has been done. And yet James charges this is exactly what's happening within the Christian community. The rich have held back wages. The workers had cried out to the Lord. And James says, like the blood of Abel spilled by his brother Cain, like the moaning of the Hebrews who were oppressed in Egypt, the cries of these unpaid wages and mistreated workers at the hands of the rich have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. Maybe we ought to keep this in mind when we vote in just a few weeks while we may physically be alone in the ballot box, the Lord hears the cries of those who are affected, who are abused or mistreated because of how we vote or don't vote. The third abuse by, of the rich that James emphasizes is personal excess. Verse five, you've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. Why does God bless us with the wealth and resources we possess? Be it time, money, property, skills, experience, influence, why? Is it for our glory or for his? James here faults the rich who use their riches for their glory rather than God's. Now, it's not that we can't or we shouldn't enjoy the good things that God gives us. When the Lord created this world, he declared it to be good. And part of that goodness was God calling us to enjoy what he has made, what he provides for us. What James is rebuking is an attitude of excess, where our personal pleasure and enjoyment exceeds or supersedes exercising all we have been given for God's glory, for the Lord's pleasure and enjoyment. And what brings God glory? What pleases the Lord, bringing our creator joy? When we take what we have been given and use it to love and to serve, to encourage and to protect, to heal and to better the lives of others, particularly those in need. Interestingly, the connotation of the word used here by James translated as luxury in our Bibles isn't about the rich going hog wild in wanton vice. The heart of this word as James uses it is about the rich taking from rather than giving to those in need for the increased benefit and excessive pleasure of the rich. In other words, James is equating personal excess and extravagant self-indulgence with denying or robbing those in need of what God has ordained to be rightfully theirs. Jesus once said the rich who live like this were to be pitied because on earth they had already received their comfort and their reward. And James, echoing his older stepbrother, expresses things a little less delicately as he asserts those who pamper themselves with the most lavish lifestyle they can afford are in fact fattening themselves for the slaughter. We are meant to enjoy life and the things of this life. We are. But when we live to personal excess, as we become content to just grow old, fat, and happy, instead of growing lean with discipline and becoming healthier and seeking to meet the needs of others, my friends, we are disinheriting ourselves from the kingdom of God. And if that sounds harsh, let us remember what Jesus taught us. We cannot serve two masters. Either we will hate the one and love the other, or we will be devoted to the one and despise the other. We cannot serve both God and wealth. Self-indulgence in the accumulation of wealth is progressively addictive. It always inevitably leads to our destruction. The fourth and final abuse James puts forth on the part of the rich in verse six is injustice. He writes, you have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. What James is talking about here is judicial murder. In other words, the rich are using the legal system to take the means of others, their way to make a living. What's being implied here is wealthy landowners are abusing their power through the court systems of the day. The wealthy were either dragging poorer, smaller, indebted farmers into court on charges, legitimate or not, or were rebuking those who were trying to fight for the wages they weren't paid. Being sued with little or no resources to defend themselves, the poor would be stripped of their land and thus their way to make a living. In the Jewish world, to deprive a person of their means of support was the same thing as murdering them. And given that in the ancient world, a poor person who was sued lost what little they had left, their murder by the rich could be literal, as they would often be left to die of starvation. So James here gives us four specific examples of abuses by the rich. And once again, scripture becomes a mirror held up to us by which we must take a long, hard look at our lives, both in terms of how we obtain our riches and how we leverage the wealth we have. No doubt, we may still find it hard to perceive how any of us, we who are Christians, could ever live a life like the one characterized by James here. I mean, a life of corruption, of theft, of excess, even orchestrated murder. But before we say, that's not me, I'm off the hook, let's not start where James ends, but where the trouble begins the subtle shifts that we can make in how we view our riches and our wealth. Let's begin again with the fact that despite what I shared at the start of this sermon, many of us are still not convinced that we are rich. (laughs) And as we keep denying we are wealthy, let's be honest about how many times we can look at a closet stuffed with clothes and still bemoan that we have nothing to wear. Let's keep it real. And confess how often we go to our cupboards our pantries and our refrigerators filled with food and yet complain we have nothing to eat let's tell the truth about how we have the luxury of filling attics or garages or even paying for storage units in order to keep a multitude of things we don't use so much stuff that we don't even remember all we've got guys let's stop avoiding the obvious that we You and I are richly blessed with wealth and resources. Despite our excuses, most of us can do way more than we think we can. Despite our protestations, we rarely, if at all, ever lack for anything, let alone go hungry or without. We are clothed and warm and secure. So let us have ears to hear what God is saying to us through this passage in James. While I would certainly hope that none of us are hoarding or being fraudulent, holding back wages or living to excess or cheating others to advance our own pocketbooks, the heart of the matter are not the extremes that James calls out here, but the motivation and the means by which we exercise whatever wealth and resources we have. Let us understand God knows how we gain our wealth. Let us understand God knows how we use our wealth. Let us understand God will hold us accountable for our wealth. How we gained what we have and how we leveraged what we were given for his glory. To whom much is given, much is required. That's not from Spider-Man. This is a principle Jesus teaches us in the parable of the talents in Luke chapter 12. Beloved. If money talks, what is the money, the wealth you've been blessed with saying? What does it say about you? Let us search our hearts as rich people for our attitudes concerning wealth. Are we saving or hoarding? Are we generous or stingy? Let's ask the Holy Spirit this question. Are we trusting in our wealth? And let's listen closely for the answer. Are my business practices reflecting my faith in Christ? Let us consider those we hire and have financial influence over. Again, let us ask the Holy Spirit, are we treating those whom we hire who work for us fairly and honorably? Are we shortchanging those who serve us, always trying to pay less, priding ourselves on getting a bargain? and yet fattening our purse while those we hire, either as long-term employees, or for the moment as a waiter, a driver, or other server, as they struggle to make ends meet for themselves and their families. Could we trade places with those who serve us without struggling or suffering? A couple of dollars may mean nothing to us, small change, right? But if the difference in those couple of dollars is your only income, that could be the difference between going to bed full or hungry. Are my spending habits and standard of living a witness to my personal excess or to honest personal necessity? Are we addicted to consumption? Before all our luxuries and self-indulgences, do we need to admit we have a problem, that we have convinced ourselves that we can buy our way into joy, happiness, or freedom? Will I stand before Jesus on the last day feeling comfortable with how I've stewarded the wealth and resources God has given me? Will we be guilty of accumulating riches on the backs of others? Will we be able to justify all the voting decisions we've made, all the legal actions we've taken as leveraging our resources for the kingdom of God? Or did we bow before the economics of humanity and the court of public opinion? Beloved, there is no way to sugarcoat this. We're rich and if we, as those who are rich, oppress those in need, We are not following Jesus. We are standing in opposition to Christ. It's not about how much money you have. It's not about how much wealth we amass. It's not about how many resources we attain. All of that stuff is the means for us to extend, to share, to invest our true riches and wealth, which is grace. The invitation and challenge before us is this, as God abundantly gives us grace, how are we using that grace for abundant good? Abundant good for God, which means abundant good for others, particularly those in need. All of our God given riches, all of our God given wealth is of the same currency grace. And grace cannot be hoarded. There is no basis or justification for withholding grace. Grace is not for our personal indulgence, grace is for the betterment of others. And when grace is forsaken, it's rejected whenever justice is supported or or tolerated. My friends, material wealth, money and possessions rightly received and exercised are a means of grace. And as a means of anything else, material wealth becomes addictive, consuming and destructive. The only way we can rightly receive and exercise all material wealth as a means of grace is by becoming generous. And generosity is part of the fruit the Spirit seeks to cultivate in us. Generosity is the character of God and therefore the kind of people we are destined together to become in Christ. Generosity born of the Spirit inoculates us against materialism and consumerism. Generosity born of the Spirit untangles us from the stuff we think we own but really is attempting to own us. Generosity born of the Spirit teaches us the richest investment we can ever make is to invest in other people and to build them up. Generosity born of the spirit reveals to us, the most satisfied people are those who spend the wealth and resources they have been given for the sake of serving others. Money talks, your money's talking, my money's talking. The question is, what's it saying? Our earthly wealth is more temporary than we know, but our eternal wealth is more valuable than we can imagine. So beloved, the question isn't, can we afford to be generous? The question is, can we really afford not to be? Amen.